You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahim the commander... Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants... The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records, and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste, We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. 
and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, it's a great delight to be with you again. Thank you so much for your invitation to speak. I love uh, preaching on the Old Testament, and I, my personal opinion is that the more Old Testament you get into yourself, the stronger your faith will be. Because if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that God can make a promise and you might have to wait 2,000 years for it to be fulfilled. Uh, but God always does what he says. And what great preparation that is for living as Christians. We're still waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. But if we learn from the Old Testament that God is a God who does fulfill his promises in the long term, all we need to do is to wait for God's work to be done and Jesus to return. So here's my simple rule. The more Old Testament you know, the stronger your faith will be. So I'm so delighted that you're, you're looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The theme of Ezra chapter 4 is that God's people face seduction, suffering, and slander. God's people face seduction, suffering, and slander. As you'll know, uh, God's people are back in their own land, yet they're still subject to the power of the great Persian emperor. And we now discover they're under attack from their neighbors. In this uh, chapter of Ezra, the first focus is an attack during the rebuilding of the temple. And we find this in verses 1 to 5. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the rest and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Who is it who's saying, Let us build with you? 
It is, as a matter of fact, uh, people brought in near the land of Israel and into the land of Israel by the Assyrians after Samaria, the northern kingdom, had been destroyed. And they had they'd kind of brought their own religion with them, but also ad adopted a bit of the religion of the land, that is, a bit of the worship of the Lord God. Uh, we find this, uh, some of these people described as the Samaritans in the New Testament. And you might remember that comment in uh, John chapter 4, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Yet, as we know, Jesus talked to that Samaritan woman and gave her new life in Christ. But at this time, back in Ezra's day, to say we worship your God as you do was a lie. Because they worshipped that God and other gods as well. And the worship they offered to the true God was corrupt worship. And in those days, in those days, not, not today, but in those days, racial purity and religious purity were linked together in those days, not nowadays. So what is it like for the people of God to be seduced? It is that they're offered support, resources, protection, approval, and encouragement from ungodly people. That is, the world is saying, we will support you, we will resource you, we will protect you, we will approve of you, we will encourage you if you just lower the standards of your religion, if you just uh, adapt the God you believe in to include other ideas, if you just become reasonable people, cooperative people, uh, then we will support you. Well, I praise God for the reply in verse 3. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. The first pressure is seduction. The first pressure the people of God face in this chapter is seduction, an attractive offer to come away from a wholehearted service and love of the one true and living God. The second pressure they face we find in verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land said their first method hadn't worked, so they tried another method, uh, suffering. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That is... They threatened them, they discouraged them, they made them afraid, they bribed officials against them, they frustrated them. And as a matter of fact, the, 
the, the, the, the temple was not completed until 515 BC, as it says in the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, uh, if you happen to have a Bible open in front of you, let me just explain this chapter is a bit complicated to read. Uh, because what we should do is put a bracket after verse 5, which goes on till the end of verse 23. Because what we find in this history of the people of God is that uh, the adversaries opposing the rebuilding of the temple is the subject of verses 1 to 5. And then we find a later problem they faced in the, in the next in the next reign, the reign of Ahasuerus, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And then another example goes from uh, 7 to verse 23. Uh, and then in verse 24, you should read that after verse, uh, all the, uh, uh, after verse 5. So you jump from verse 5 to verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and, and it ceased until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. So the first attack is on rebuilding the temple. The second attack, which occurs later, is an attack on rebuilding the walls. Uh, to Artaxerxes, verse uh, 11, uh, be it known to you, the king, that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. And this time, the, uh, the, the opposition comes not in, form, in the form of seduction or suffering, but slander. Listen to this. Now let it be known, this verse 13, now let it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls will finish, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. The royal revenue will be impaired. Nothing an emperor makes an emperor panic more than the royal revenue will be impaired. How terrifying. Uh, it's, uh, we eat the salt of the palace. We're obedient servants. It's not fitting for us to worship the king's dishonor. Here's another lie. Therefore, we send and inform the king that the search may be made in the books of the records of your fathers. You'll find in the book of the records and learn the city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces. Sedition was stirred up from of old. That is why the city was laid waste. And this amazing statement in verse 16, we make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finish, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Well, that was a very big province, and the city was a very small city. So they're, they're just making up these lies that if this one city is rebuilt, then the result will be that the whole province beyond the river, that is, beyond the Euphrates, then the whole province will be lost to the emperor. A ridiculous, a ridiculous statement. You only, only have to read it to think that is sheer lunacy. It's a lie. But of course, when the world wants to stop believers serving their God, the world will use any lie it wants. The people of God face seduction 
suffering and slander. Now, if you're uh, you've recently become a Christian or you're inquiring about Christianity, you may ask, what, what has this remote story <laughs> from years before the Lord Jesus Christ came, what, what, what significance does it have for us? Why, why do Christians read these Old Testament stories? So let me just say, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, you, you need to take a kind of, after you've read it, you need to take a step back and think, well, how does this fit into the whole Bible? So uh, we've got the, the Old Testament story. Now, how does this fit into the New Testament story as well? Because the New Testament is a, a, a fuller uh, and final revelation. If you like... The Old Testament is primary school and the New Testament is secondary school. The, the, the Old Testament puts the foundations in place. The New Testament tells you what to do with these foundations. So I'm just going to read some New Testament verses which might help you understand how Christians should read these stories. Let's think about the possession of the land. And each, on each occasion, I'll read a New Testament verse and then give you the reference if you want to jot it down. So what should, how should we think about this squabble about the land? Uh, by faith, we read in the New Testament, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, for he was looking forward to the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. We might think that people of the Old Testament were obsessed with the promised land as land. But actually, we learn that Abraham was looking for, 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 for that to which the land pointed. Or they desire a better country, a heavenly one. I'm reading from there from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9, 10 and 16. Or again from 1 Peter, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, not the land, but an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So in the Old Testament, the land was the inheritance. For us, it is a, an unfading, a perfect inheritance, undefiled, unfading, which is reserved in heaven for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Or if we're thinking about the rebuilding of the temple. The temple, if you like, was a visible sign. The temple of the Old Testament in Jerusalem was a visible sign of the Christ who was to come. The promise that one day God would come not into a building, but in his son, in flesh, when the word was made flesh. Just think of these words, uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple, he says, of the temple in Jerusalem, and in three days I will raise it up. How amazing. But he was actually speaking of the temple of his body. John 2, 19 to 21. 
Or think of the racial purity, which is so much part of this story of Ezra and which uh, I find difficult to uh, to kind of take on board it. It seems so wrong. Well, it is, it is wrong because the, 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 the system has changed. In those days, in the Old Testament, roughly uh, racial purity was the same as religious purity. But that's all different now. Listen to Paul in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, of course, but also to the Gentile, that is, to people who aren't Jews. An amazing statement. Or again, Paul in uh, Galatians uh, 3, uh, that was Romans 1.16. Paul in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. Or even more strikingly, the Gentiles, Paul writes, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. So the wonderful thing in the New Testament is that people from every tongue and language and nation and people uh, are saved by Jesus and gathered together to be the people of God. And as a matter of fact, the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ is the longest-running international and multi-ethnic body in the world. It's extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. Praise God. But then when we think of enemies in uh, the story of Ezra, what, what are, we, are we meant to think about Uh, building walls around ourselves so people can't get in? Not at all, no. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12 that our enemies are not flesh and blood. Uh, Our enemy is Satan, not flesh and blood. So although we might talk about the enemies of the people of God, uh, actually the real enemy of the people of God is not people but Satan. And while we do use the language of enemies of the church or enemies of God's people, we need to remember from Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that actually while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God does not hate his enemies, he, the enemies of God's people. God loves them. Just think of Saul on the road to Damascus to go and kill some more Christians and converted in a moment, and commissioned in a moment to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that is, to the non-Jews. No, God loves his enemies and wants them to be reconciled to him through the blood of his son. And we have to love our enemies as well. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father, for the sun rises, he sends the sun to rise on the evil and the good and reign, his reign on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 44 to 45. So when you hear people talking about the enemies of God's people or the enemies of the church, please think again, please don't use that language. And please don't describe them as God's enemies, because you were once God's enemy And God has reconciled to you. And God's great plan is to reconcile them as well. 
God loves them. We must love them. So our enemies today in New Testament times and uh, until Jesus returns are not flesh and blood, but Satan himself. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And if you read through the book of Revelation, you'll find that God's people face seduction, slander, and suffering. Listen to this in uh, Jesus' words to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, hear, the, hear the hint of seduction. There are some there who hold the teaching of Balaam to, uh, and, and, and cause people to eat food offered to idols and practice sexual immorality. Or to another church in Revelation 2.20, you tolerate that prophetess whose teaching uh, is seducing my servants to practice sex and sexual immorality and to eat food offered to idols. So even in the New Testament times, Jesus talks about the last days and his own days, all the period between his ascension and his return, as time when we uh, Christians are liable to be seduced away from true spiritual chastity, which is to love and serve God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit alone. Or again, in these letters to the churches, Revelation 2 and 3, the church faces suffering. Uh, chapter 2, I know your patient endurance, for you've endured patiently for my name's sake. Or do not fear what you're about to suffer. So Jesus is saying to his churches, uh, I, I know that you endure suffering, and I, please don't fear what you're about to suffer as believers. I'm quoting there from Revelation chapter 2, verses 2, 3, and 10. And churches will face slander. Uh, Revelation 2, 9, oh, no, I know your tribulation and the slander you suffer. So what is it like as God's people to face the seductive voices which want to draw us away from Christ? When we face the suffering which is liable to silence us and the slander which is liable to oppress us. Here's something very important. Our Christian character is more clearly revealed by our reactions than our actions. Because when we're kind of in control of our lives and planning to do things, we, we find it, uh, well, sensible to plan to do good things. But a greater test of our lives is our reactions. My, my dog Beatrice, who's a lovely dog, uh, she had an operation on um, Friday, and so she has one of these Elizabethan collars around her neck. And she had to be kept warm and so on and inside at night. You know, she's feeling very sorry for herself. Okay. So I decided to sleep on the couch downstairs so I could keep an eye on her and make sure it was okay. So would you believe at 3 o'clock 
she got up and started wandering around the room making clunking noises as the, the plastic collar hit the furniture. Well, you know, I'm a pleasant, thoughtful, gentle, loving person in generally, but let me tell you at three in the morning, I am not. And very fierce words were spoken, uh, with no effect at all, of course. <laughs> she just kept blundering around the room. Uh, so, uh, you know, when I plan to be pleasant, I can be pleasant. But it's when I'm caught off guard. So I was talking to somebody, I've just been in Perth, talking to a man about this. He said, yes, he'd, he'd been helping out uh, at a lunch at church, and somebody, somebody had come in and stolen uh, his phone and his keys from the, his bag, which was in the front room. Uh, well, you don't expect that to happen, do you? So he started running after the person. I said, was that wise? He said, I didn't stop to think, I just ran after them. Well, for an elderly man, I thought that was a very risky thing to do. But anyway, there we are. You see, we, we, we don't plan for the world to seduce us. We don't plan for suffering. We don't plan to face slander. The question is how we respond when it happens. Now, let me tell you, I was a minister at St. Jude's in Carlton for 20 years. And after 10 years... This is, this, is, this is really bad news, I'm afraid. I made a list of 50 people from the congregation, congregations who had been keen Christians and faithful workers in the church who had now abandoned Christianity completely. 50 people. Isn't that amazing? Well, I wonder if that might happen at City on a Hill. As we face seduction, suffering, or slander. Or, if we don't abandon Christianity, we might just be silenced. Because people don't mind what you believe on the inside. What they object to is what you say on the outside and what you do on the outside. So the, the effect uh, of the seduction, suffering and slander that we Christians in Australia might face over the next 40 years, and certainly the temperature is rising, might be that we stay Christians, but we are silent Christians. Why would we be open to the power of seduction from the world because we judge by appearance and not reality. I met somebody recently who said, I always thought Queen Victoria was a very unpleasant woman until I saw The Crown, the movie The, movie, the Crown. Then I thought she must have been quite nice. <laughs> well, it was because the actress was quite nice that she'd changed her view of Queen Victoria. Well, how on earth would you think that you could tell a person's character from the actress who played them a hundred years after they were dead? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Well, somebody said to me recently, I'd never vote for Scott Morrison because he smirks. Well, he is not responsible. God gave him his face, presumably, in his wisdom. You can't help your face as I think every morning when I look in the mirror. <laughs> Don't blame me. You made me. Okay? But, I mean, what a, f what a f 
an amazing statement. I couldn't vote for him because of his face. Is that not a little superficial? But you see, we're so easily seduced because we have too much information and so little time to reflect deeply. As Lenin said, religious people are easy to fool because they will believe anything if it's stated in religious language. Isn't that an amazing statement for a ruler of Russia? I read a story of um, um, uh, the preparation for an election in uh, America, back in a kind of outback America, if I could put it that way, backwards America. And what happened was the two candidates came to this small town and one of them talked for one and a half hours and then the other responded for one and a half hours and then the people questioned them. Now, I'm not sure if what they said were over the one and a half hours was worth listening to, but at least the people set aside three hours to listen to decide how to vote. Well, we don't do that deep. We don't give our election that deep attention, do we? Uh, we our society is so superficial that we go on a, a you know, 30-second grab from Scomo or Alba, whatever it is. Uh, and, and we respond at a superficial level, many of us, rather than a deep level, actually considering the policies. So we're liable to seduction, I think, because we don't think deeply and because we, eval we value appearance and popularity so much. We're liable to, to cave in when suffering comes because we are so engaged in the pursuit of pleasure and because we're so committed to maximum benefit with minimum effort. I love those books which say, uh, you know, three easy lessons to have a happy marriage. I think, wow, that is amazing. Or two lessons to make, you know, to be the most wealthy person in the world. Well, that's sheer rubbish, isn't it? There's no effective growth without effort. We know that as believers. I'm sure you know that in your job. Nothing worthwhile is achieved without suffering, as a matter of fact. That's true of marriages. It's true of family life. It's true of building a community. It's true of a church. And we're liable to be pressured by suffering because we are so reluctant to face pain. I love the story of a, a, a man going to see a, a minister who was a friend of John Wesley's. And he said, I'm sorry to see you ill. The minister replied, sorry, sir, why should you be sorry? Should I not welcome the discipline of a loving heavenly father? Well, I've never met a Christian who said, I accept this suffering, this illness, as the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. No, we go, we go for the tablets immediately. 
And when I go to the GP and she says, I know what's wrong with you, but we can't do anything about it, I think, that's disgraceful. I'm going to write a letter to the Prime Minister about you. There must be a pill you can give me to make me feel better. Because we have this kind of right to be relieved of suffering. That's, that's the Western world, isn't it? Well, the two-thirds world, they can suffer. But we in the West, we mustn't suffer. And slander, why we're so easily defeated by slander, isn't it? Because we, 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 we are so under the pressure of public opinion. We like to be liked. And if someone tells a lie about us, well, we're going to cave in, aren't we? Or the threat of a lie about us, slander, we'll cave in immediately. Because we want to be popular. We, we're, we're vulnerable, aren't we, to all of these things because we like approval. We, we want to make a success of our lives. We want to make a good impression. We want to gain influence. We want to gain power. We don't want to suffer in our lifestyle or employment or popularity or esteem or public opinion, do we? So we're vulnerable when the world attacks us, tries to seduce us, or, or impose suffering on us or slanders us. We're likely as individuals to cave in. But we're also liable to, liable to cave in as churches. Because Christian churches, like approval, want to be successful, want to give a good impression, want to gain influence and power, don't want to, don't want to suffer, to lose popularity, esteem, or positive public opinion. The aim of the seduction, suffering, and slander is to make us give up being followers of Jesus Christ. Or if not, to shut our mouths. To know Christ, but not to make him known. In our day, as in the world of Ezra, God's people face seduction, suffering, and slander. I want to urge you as individuals and as a church not to cave in when you face seduction suffering or slander. I urge you and appeal to you not to cave in because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I urge you to stand firm in the midst of persecution 
seduction, suffering, and slander. Because Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy, his holy angels. I remember the first time I read that. Jesus is not just being ashamed of me, but of my words, his teaching as well. The moment I'm ashamed of Jesus' teaching, that moment I'm in, at risk of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, being ashamed of me when he comes in his glory. Or think of Jesus' words in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Matthew seven twenty-seven. Or the warning of Jesus... Matthew 7 again, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who find it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's a wide gate, an easy path to destruction, but a narrow gate and a hard way to life. Only through Jesus Christ. Or this warning, Matthew 24, they'll deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated in all nations for my sake. False prophets will arise and lead many astray, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, it's so true, isn't it? Starting something is the easy bit. Continuing to the end is the great challenge. It can be great fun starting as a Christian, though, of course, you may face persecution immediately. But it's this long, long, slow plod of persistent, patient endurance in the face of slander and suffering and seduction, enduring to the end, which, which, which matters. Beware. God's people do face and will face even more in the future in the West. Seduction, suffering and slander. The best safeguard I know is to say to Jesus every day, I praise you, I trust you, I know you, I love you, I worship you, I will serve you, I will live for you, I will suffer for you, and I will make you known. I'd like to make that statement again and invite you to respond with each phrase. So if you'd like to stand, please, would you echo the words I say?
Lord Jesus Christ, I praise you. Say it together. Lord Jesus Christ, I praise you. I trust you. Even louder, I know you. Even louder, I love you. Even louder, I worship you. I will serve you. Live for you. Suffer you. And make you known. Praise the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.